This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mopac Audio. From everyone at Mopac Audio, thanks for listening to the season one finale of the Yuba County 5 podcast. All seven episodes are now available for download. If you've enjoyed the series, please share with your friends and leave a review wherever you find your podcasts. As a quick note, this show contains adult language, descriptions of violence, and historical terminology that may be offensive to some. And again, thanks for listening. It was a Sunday in late 1994 at a small Pentecostal fellowship in the Marysville suburb of Linda. A member of the congregation, a man in his early 40s who had recently been released from prison, gave a testimony to the church. And this guy knew had done horrible things, stole and cheated, but God's grace covered it, amen? amen? This guy abused women, but God's grace covered it. Amen. This guy threw a man off a bridge, but God's grace covered it. Amen. He terrorized some disabled boys, this guy knew. This guy knew he took somebody's life. And this guy used to be me. But God's grace covers me, and it covers you too. Amen? So they got diverted for some reason that, of course, we don't know. So it had to be through uh, manipulation or force. At first they suspected foul play, but then that got ruled out. Why? Who knows? For the lawmen, there lies a bigger job ahead, trying to find the answer to the baffling question of what the men were doing here. Did they get here on their own? And why? Or were they brought here deliberately and left behind to die? I'm Shannon McGarvey. After June of 1978, once the Yuba County Five were declared dead or presumed dead, this story could have easily ended there despite an obvious lack of answers. But it was in the absence of knowing exactly how the men found themselves in the mountains that night, what had to have happened to get them up there, that created the perfect environment for theories to emerge. One theory explicitly blamed a local convict turned preacher. Another pointed to Gary Mathias, and the rest seemed to settle somewhere between simply getting lost and the fantastical. And because no one really knows what happened, nothing, however strange or unlikely, is beyond the realm of possibility. I have worked on a few other stories in which people had awful things happen to people that they love. I think I understand the human impulse to create a story to try to explain that thing. That's journalist Cynthia Gorney, who wrote about the Yuba County Five case in a seminal 1978 piece for the Washington Post. Because it would be so difficult for any human being to live with the uncertainty, to never really understand what happened to, to their loved one, my guess is that um, grief and time pushes people to come up with explanations. 
Lance Ayers said that he had a lot of theories in 1978, and you can shoot holes through all of them. That's Tony Wright, whose book, Things Aren't Right, What Happened to the Yuba County Five, is forthcoming. But the bigger question we always have is, what were they doing on that road at that location at that time? And these are the central questions that haunt everyone who has touched the case. Here's author Drew Beeson. They were way way far from where they were supposed to be. And uh, that's a big part of this mystery is why they were there in the first place. The one thing that everyone sort of points to is them getting lost. The idea that the men just got lost has often been an entry point into theories about this case. What is certain is that the group somehow found themselves in the middle of the mountains and invariably all vanished or died. But something happened on their drive home from Chico that night. And whatever that something was, is the key to solving the mystery of this case. If you read the papers, family members said they've made trips before. And I've asked the family members in these trips, did it involve a trip to Chico, California? And from what they could remember, yes, they've been to Chico. Even if the men had never traveled to Chico before, they still had four maps on hand the night they disappeared. Bill Sterling, according to his mother Juanita, knew how to read a map. And Gary Mathias and Jack Madruga would have also known how to navigate using a map due to their training in the Army. If Jack Madruga's behind the wheel, then he would know to get back on the main road to drive down to either Marysville or Yuba City. Jack Madruga absolutely knew how to turn his car around when lost. He would not have gone that far up that road knowing that it was leading to nowhere and he was climbing an elevation. The valley is different from going up into the Sierra Nevada mountains. That's Yuba County documentarian Sean Cale Williams. And you can tell you're headed in the wrong direction, especially if it starts to snow. That's just something that doesn't happen in the valley. The route between Chico and Marysville is completely flat. Any change in elevation or weather, especially snow, would have signaled to the men that they were going the wrong way. It should have hit them when they got to the bridge near Lake Oroville and being by the Oroville Dam, they should have known this is not where we need to be. Because once they cross that bridge, they're going up that winding road into Plumas, and that should have been like, no, this is not the way home. Some speculate that the prevalence of the theory that the men just got lost correlates with the use of the word retarded by news outlets at the time. It almost seems once that's out there, there's almost a thought of, well, that it's their fault. And that really deeply affected the families that were already suffering to the maximum level. Kathy's brother George agrees the subtext seems loaded. He wasn't uh, quote unquote a retard. He was an intelligent man. It made me angry when I first read all these things about these guys who just got lost and kept driving and driving. Given everything that is known about the men, their capabilities and their life experiences, it seems highly unlikely that they would have simply taken a wrong turn, gotten lost, and just kept going. But there is another theory that suggests the men may have gone into the mountains on purpose, that Gary Mathias persuaded the other four to visit some old friends in a nearby town. Gary had a couple of friends that lived in Fordstown, and I think maybe on the way home that night, Gary talked his friends into just stopping over at, at these guys' house. Then, as the theory goes, one of two things happened. The first suggests the men made it to Gary's friend's house. It was speculated that maybe that foul play was involved and they were being held against their will in, in the town of Forbestown. From there, for some unknown reason, the men were forced into the mountains and met their fate. But Yuba County officials looked into it. When they went to meet the people in Forbestown that Gary knew, they said, we haven't talked to that guy in years. 
The second version of this theory states the group never even made it to Forbestown. They said it was a pretty easy turn to miss going to Forbestown to make the wrong turn going up the Orville Quincy Highway to the Rogers Cow Camp. So they're driving up and it's a snow covered road, maybe three to six inches of snow on the ground. And you're driving a car through that and it's not plowed. It's going to be tough. And you're probably just eventually going to get stuck. And they did. When the car was found, it had spun its wheels a few times, but it had gas in it still. And it could have just been shoved out of the snow a little bit. It might have been the first time they were stuck in the snow. And if you don't really know how to get yourself out of it, it's going to be almost a panic-inducing moment. And for the boys, I think that could have been a moment of like, okay, what do we do now? And they got out of the car. They know better than to to keep going up into the mountain. Anybody would know better. The theory then purports that on a sub-freezing night in the middle of the wilderness, the men, some who didn't even have jackets, hiked further up the mountain, away from their warm, operable car and the lights of civilization. And all of this is based on the theory that Gary could have convinced the men to make a last-minute stop in Forbestown on the eve of their big game. All I know personally is something or someone just sent them up where the car was found and where the bodies were found, and it's just trying to find that missing link. Some believe that missing link lies with Joseph Schoens, the man who got his Volkswagen stuck at the snow line and had a heart attack while trying to push it free. He is allegedly the last person to have seen the five men alive, and there's a theory that he could have had something to do with their deaths. Although authorities stopped pursuing Schoens, he remained a person of interest to many, including some of the men's family members. This is an excerpt from a never-before-aired audio recording of a meeting between some of those family members and Joseph Shones. The tapes are over 40 years old, so the quality is pretty degraded. In case it wasn't clear, a family member asked Joseph Shones how much snow was on the ground the night of February 24th. He told her quite a bit, and then detailed how his vehicle got stuck on a rock, not in the snow, which is what he told police. This is important to note because several people have speculated there was no way Shones could have gotten his Volkswagen up that steep, unpaved mountain road, let alone past the snow line where the Montego was later abandoned. I've never seen where any car went around him. Or was there before, how'd he get out? That was Jack Hewitt Sr. According to Shones' own account, the Montego pulled in approximately 200 yards behind him on what was essentially an impassable, narrow, one-lane road. Shones claimed two days after his car got stuck, his wife, Cindy, retrieved the vehicle. This means she would have had to somehow drive around the Montego, which was impossible. And I don't give a damn if he's driving a motor scooter. He couldn't get around that goddamn car. But the Hewitts weren't the only family questioning how Shones made it up the mountain, or if he was even on that road. In the same audio recording with the families, Jack Madruga's older sister, Janet, pressed Shones after he claimed his wife was able to free the Volkswagen. They pushed, they pushed Volkswagen out. 
To clarify, after the Montego was discovered, Janet said her family used a four-wheel drive vehicle to access the site and still had a very difficult time reaching it. Shones quickly cut her off. It seemed apparent through his ever-evolving narrative and the accounts of people who actually knew him that questions about Shones' involvement quickly turned into doubts that he was ever up there to begin with. You couldn't tell he was bombed. Like, whenever you saw him, you really uh, you couldn't tell the guy was, was drunk. Tom McGarry lived next door to Joseph Shones in Berry Creek and had a ton of anecdotal information about him. He would be driving around. You'd see him with his 12-pack or whatever, 18-pack. or You know, he, he, he always had one going. He would go into places like the Mount Us Lodge or the bars around this area and cause trouble. And people kind of knew that this guy's going to say something ridiculous at any point here. He was one of the few people they'll ever run into that will just reel off absolute nonsense to hear himself talk because he has an audience. He was a spontaneous, on-the-spot bullshitter that it, what, anything that was coming out of him, it wouldn't have been thought about any longer than it took him to just say it. Shones had a reputation as a busybody alcoholic who liked to position himself at the center of whatever tall tale he was spinning, which seems much more plausible in this scenario than Shones's actual culpability. But it does lead into another very broad theory that suggests sometime on their way home from Chico, the men may have encountered a different stranger from the area who then forced them into the mountains. Again, here's Sean Kale Williams. The population is small, especially at the time. There weren't a lot of people living in the area, and the people living up towards Plumas National Forest, Berry's Creek area, they were extremely isolated. They had their own little communities, and very rarely would they have any type of law enforcement navigating those areas. Tom McGarry describes the area at the time as having a certain air of lawlessness. Everybody was packing, you know, you would just walk around carrying, I mean, nobody would say anything to you. You're so far from town, you know, you're like 25 miles at least, depending on where you are, from Oroville, and that's where the cops came from. It was very isolated, and who knows what actually was happening up there. You had loggers, there was uh, Native Americans around there, you had survivalists. You had hippies, you know, a lot of back-to-the-land people, a lot of, you know, ex-military type guys. There are some people that live up there that go way back up in those foothills and live, and they call them Martians. Although Jack Beecham isn't referring to actual Martians, ironically, official case files do include correspondence about UFO sightings around the time the men disappeared. Letters were coming in from at least one UFO expert on the boys being abducted by aliens. In July of 1978, a man wrote to the Yuba County Sheriff's Office suggesting aliens had played a role in the men's disappearance and death. Whereas authorities never actually entertained the idea of an alien abduction, officials did try to make sense of the man's letter and theorized it could have had something to do with recent reports of a low-flying helicopter in guerrilla-style paramilitary troops. There was like these ex-Marine people who owned a helicopter that would go out into those areas in the, in the Plumas National Forest at the time and would abduct or violently assault people in the community. And there's letters coming in from people saying that they were kidnapped by a rogue group of Marine commandos. This group was suspected of having ties to the KKK and was allegedly conducting covert military exercises 
over California's central coast. But what would racist Marines want with five guys on their way home from a basketball game? I think it goes to show that some of the people living in those communities closer to Berry's Creek, Bucks Lake, where the men's car was found and where Ted Weaver's body was found, they were in their own little world up there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. No one can definitively say what happened to the men on the night they disappeared. Aliens and deranged paramilitary troops seem to be the most unlikely of all possibilities. It's all of this stuff kind of piling on top of each other, just creating this unusual, you know, set of scenarios that could have played out. I've always been of the theory that something happened. There was some sort of fear of someone, fear of something, sent them off their path and led them into the Plumas National Forest. What seems most likely are two of the more prominent and substantive theories about this case. The first which centers around Gary Mathias. My name is Benji Eagle. I'm a reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Benji wrote an in-depth 2019 series on the Yuba County Five case and uncovered much of what is publicly known about Gary Mathias's history. When I first started reporting on the case, the impression that had been painted pretty much in all media accounts was that this was a tragic tale of five mentally disabled young men who went missing. And my main takeaway as I started the investigation was that this was four and one. This was four young men with similar disabilities and then another man, Gary Mathias, with a very different sort of mental disability that should not have been lumped in with them. The opinion that was voiced by some of the parents that we interviewed was that they were uh, influenced by one member of the group. I remember Jack Beecham saying that there was something different about Gary Mathias, and that sort of became the major thing that we were looking into. Mathias was kind of a a latecomer to the group. The four others had pretty much known each other for years. Some of the parents were very suspicious of him. But, you know, that was a string that hadn't been properly pulled at the time. And when Benji did pull that string and began to contextualize Gary's past, an entirely new narrative unraveled. A lot of signs seem to point to Gary Mathias maybe having something to do with it. I don't know exactly in what capacity. There's still a lot of things that don't make sense, but he is, to me, the primary person of interest. Benji wasn't the only journalist who thought so. Cynthia Gorney shared similar viewpoints as well. 
To me at the time, the only way I could imagine five grown physically strong men doing something this taxing and this irrational would be if a friend that they trusted and loved believed that for some reason they needed to go up this road, they needed to go to this place. This could explain what happened to the men on the drive home from Chico that night. Again, here's Drew Beeson. One of another popular theories in this case is that Gary Mathias just went haywire and he was having some form of psychotic episode where he missed taking his drugs. Gary's stepfather at the time told us that after a short period of time, when Gary is off his medication, he became a different personality. The way he talked to himself, he really had to keep an eye on him, is what he told us. His stepfather did say to me that he was on his meds, so there was no evidence as to why this might have been so. But according to case files, Gary occasionally stopped taking his medicine and periodically abused drugs and alcohol. Is it possible a lapse in Gary's medication may have caused him to have some kind of episode that contributed to the group's disappearance? According to the Madruga family, it's not off the table. He was known not to take his medicine that time, too. I thought of that also. I thought, mm, I wonder if he nutted up on him and forced him. Either he made someone angry and they chased him up to the hills, or he somehow went off his meds and just flipped out. And But I, I do believe that, that he's the whole key to this. Well, these guys were good-hearted, and when Gary was okay, he was okay. But then evidently they've seen the other side of him, and that's what, probably what scared him. If the men did see the other side of Gary Mathias that night, then it was probably pretty scary. There are several official reports that detail Gary's sometimes disturbing struggles with mental health. In one, police caught him prowling in an Olivehurst cemetery. And they found Gary Mathias, they say, by the mausoleum smoking a cigarette. When they asked what he was doing, he said he wanted to get a Bible, which wasn't in there. And they told him to leave. In another, Gary had an episode in which he claimed voices made him break into a neighbor's home because, quote, Satan had his ring. When the officers placed him on a psychiatric hold at a local hospital, he told them he was, quote, tired of living in a graveyard. But Gary's sister Tammy says this was just a rough patch. The psychologist put him on medication because he wasn't on any meds then. But they stabilized him. They made him where he could function. He could do his own thing. You know, his mental capability was a little bit better. Members of the Matthias family have always maintained that once Gary found a medication regimen that worked, these kind of episodes ceased. Here's Gary's niece, Jess Smith. He was very high functioning. He worked directly with my grandpa doing a lawn business. So again, he's functional enough to handle working a job. It was a good couple of years before they disappeared that he was on this medicine and he was doing good. But if Gary was taking his medication regularly, could he have still had an episode? Emergency medical physician David Sainzing says it's possible. Even on medication, you might experience symptoms to some extent. We see people that at least claim they're taking their medications appropriately uh, and as prescribed that are experiencing hallucinations. But Dr. Sainzing says that scenario is atypical. In a real-world emergency department setting, super commonly what we really will see are people that ran out of medications or maybe just choose not to take it. There are indications that there may have been a lapse in Gary's medicine. In the months leading up to the group's disappearance, Gary was allegedly kicked out of several parties for behaving violently. On one occasion, he lingered outside the party, peering through the windows, and announced, quote, 
they could not bother him because he had killed all of them. And then there was a story related by a woman named Janet and Sarah, who claimed Gary told her about a bizarre recurring dream he'd had in which he was part of a group that mysteriously disappeared. I think it's fair to say that we don't know what was going on in Gary Mathias's mind was serious enough that he had been prescribed medications. The anecdotal evidence suggesting his culpability in the group's disappearance is compelling. If there had been someone else who wished them harm, why do it that way? Why take them up 20 miles of road? Why leave one guy locked in a cabin to slowly starve to death? The only way I could imagine that was someone who cared for them and was having some kind of a delusional episode and believed that something else was going on. Again, here's the Madruga family. I can't see anyone taking time out of their life to chase these poor guys up the mountain to terrorize them, basically. What reason in the world would, would someone do that? I'm thinking everything points to Gary. Gary Mathias, if he was doing hard drugs on top of his schizophrenic drugs, I mean, he could really be messed up. He could have done something to them to force them to go up there. But with no damage to Madruga's Montego, and according to officials, no obvious signs of foul play on any of the remains found, how could Gary Mathias have plausibly forced or possibly enticed Jack Madruga and three other men to drive into the wilderness and beyond that, hike over 12 miles in deep snow further up the mountain to the forestry cabin? Because no conventional violence was done to these guys, that's the reason that, to me, it's that they're, they're with someone who cares for them and who believes that he is doing the right thing, that he's leading them to a place of safety. But that's all conjecture. What is fact, though, is that he is the only man still missing, still out there somewhere, and law enforcement has seemingly never forgotten that. In 2006, the Yuba County Sheriff's Department opened a supplemental investigation into the whereabouts of Gary Mathias. An investigator determined that, quote, there did not appear to be any leads that were not followed until the end. In other words, they'd done all they can do. The book was closed. However, many family members of the men had already closed the book on Gary because in their mind, the mystery could be solved by one man, a local convict turned preacher. One of the most popular theories among the families of the Yuba County Five is that someone that Gary Mathias knew very well that had a, a strained relationship with killed Gary Mathias while he was with his four friends that night. Whereas many outsiders, experts, law enforcement, and the media believe there was no foul play surrounding how the men died, some family insiders believe Gary was murdered by someone. And this someone they refer to as the preacher, while others like Tom Hewitt call him the town bully. All of the rumors and everything always goes back to the town bully. He lacked moral character all the way around. Just a mean guy, a mean spirit. That's Dallas Weir Jr., Ted's nephew. He did some very mean, cruel things to people, from what I understand. Something about a bear trap on a woman's breasts. That's just cruel, um, uh, cruel nature. He was uh, feared by a lot of people, and he makes just a, a really great suspect just because of his bad past with Gary Mathias. Gary Mathias's sister was going out with the town bully, left him, and, and the word was, well, if you don't come back to me, your family's going to pay. You're going to suffer in ways you never thought. 
And according to Tammy Phillips, when her sister Sharon did leave this man, that's exactly what happened. You tell her, yeah, one of these days you're gonna find out what it's like to have a dead brother or a dead sister, maybe even your mom or your dad, and the cops wouldn't do anything. He was always in and out of jail, spent time in prison. He was arrested for multiple things. Tammy says every member of her family, including Gary, was being terrorized by the town bully and his crew. He told mom, you know, they won't leave me alone. They were stealing his money. They were making him take drugs. These men were coming into my parents' home. They were beating my mom. They were burning her cars. They were beating the stepdad. And because this person allegedly had a sadistic obsession with the Matthias family, some believe he may have followed Gary and his friends to the basketball game in Chico. It's speculated that somehow Gary ran into this person either at the basketball game in Chico or at some point after they left the game. Sometime after the men left Chico, they allegedly encountered the town bully and his crew. A confrontation happened and Gary Mathias was thrown into Lake Oroville. That story was first revealed to Gary Mathias's mother by one of the men that was supposedly there that night and saw it. And he was crying. And he was saying, I couldn't do anything. He said, I kept turning my back. I kept turning my back because I didn't want to watch. The other four were driven by someone else up the Orville Quincy Highway to the Rogers Cow Camp, and they were forced out of the car at gunpoint, and then they all ran up the hill out of fear. My dad discovered shell casings from a 30-30 or a 30 out 6, which is a big round, a couple of them outside the car, that he gave to the police that was never reported. But if Gary was thrown into Lake Oroville and the remaining men were forced up the mountain with a couple of warning shots, then how did Gary's shoes wind up in the trailer? And who took Ted's boots? There was proof that Gary was in that trailer, so that Gary couldn't have been thrown off the bridge. I don't know where people got their evidence or their information that my uncle was offed. But to some members of the men's families, they wholeheartedly believe this theory. Beyond that, they believe it accounts for why Gary Mathias has never been found. This is Jack Hewitt Sr. To me, it all amounts to him. Everything seems to tie into him. Too damn much stuff going on there that it couldn't just happen. It had had to be planned, a lot of it. Tom says his mother also believed this theory. She kept every news clipping. She went to every court meeting for the new the town bully. You know, why would she do that if she didn't think something? I mean, she never even knew this guy before this. Never even heard of his name, probably, before all this started. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Madruga family, specifically Janet, Jack's sister, compiled a prolific amount of independent research on the case. She interviewed lots of people around Yuba City, and oddly enough, she wound up hearing that someone that had later become a preacher had done this. Kathy Madruga says when her Aunt Janet learned about this man, she immediately tracked him down. And she went and met with the guy. She kept telling me it was the preacher guy, and uh, she went to meet with him at a bar. She went to shoot him. She went to kill him. And she said the only reason she didn't shoot him right then and there, because God would not want her to do it. 
and she got up and walked out. And what Kathy's aunt didn't realize at the time was that the preacher and the town bully were actually the same person. During a prison sentence in the 80s, he found God. So this is like some kind of independent cooperation of this theory. When I heard he was a preacher, it just floored me. But the men's families weren't the only ones who had heard the rumors about this man's past and his possible connection to the Yuba County Five. In 1994, word made it to the Yuba County Sheriff's Department that a member of a local Pentecostal church had witnessed a man admit to several killings in front of the congregation. According to official documents, a third party reported the witness had heard the man confess to several crimes, including, quote, the deaths of two out of seven retarded males in the hills about 17 years ago. Detectives took the claim seriously, but ultimately had to relegate it as hearsay because the original witness was too afraid to be named. But to some of the families, it only confirmed what they had always known. And the longer this man walked free, the more they longed for justice. I'd shoot that son of a bitch 30 minutes from now. What can they do to me? But I'd feel vindicated. Even if he didn't do it, I don't like him. <laughs> shoot that fucker in the legs and work his way up. Get him right between the eyes. Grief, as we all know, makes you crazy. Um, it makes you crazy for the short term or the middle term or the long term. The people I know who are craziest about in grief for the longest term are people who have lost children. In the absence of hard evidence, it seems to me that the reality is we don't know. We're not gonna know. Because there is no hard evidence supporting any of these theories, because no one has come forward with new information or decided that it's time to confess, I thought the story ended there, but it doesn't. Recently, our team became one of the first members of the media to receive a digitized version of the Yuba County Five case files. And when we did, we stumbled upon a document that contradicted a long-standing key element of the story. On October 8, 2020, the Yuba County Sheriff wrote an internal memo that read, quote, Gary Mathias is believed to be a victim of foul play. This case remains open as a missing person homicide case. It is in the best interest of all involved that this letter not be forwarded to Matthias's family. What has the Yuba County Sheriff's Office uncovered that suddenly changed their minds after 42 years of maintaining that there was no foul play connected to any of the men's deaths or disappearances? Who killed Gary Matthias and in turn forced the rest of the men to die on that mountain? The answer is out there. We just have to find it. If you like the Yuba County Five podcast, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Mobac Audio also has two other podcasts you might like, Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, and An Absurd Result. Follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream. Find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Yuba Podcast. That's at Yuba Podcast or online at yubapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This has been a Mopac Audio production. Our executive producers are Jonathan Nauzardin and Jonathan Beal. Chris Moss is supervising producer. Julian Singleton is our research and archival coordinator. And I'm Shannon McGarvey, writer and senior producer. Editing and music by Blake Maples. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.